I have been asked to speak on this Mother's Day today, and it'll probably be my last talk here in Sutton Vineyard. So, <laughs> so I wanted to include some things um, from my experience of being here. Um, my talk overall is Let's Talk About Mothers, which is an appropriate title for Mother's Day. And most of what I'm going to talk about is relevant to this theme. I do want to say, though, that I'm also thinking about the role of the whole church collectively as metaphorical mother in the world, um, because we function in the power of the Holy Spirit, who represents the Father, the Son, and the Spirit um, in the Bible is linked to the idea of wisdom and is called Sophia, which is a female personification. So we're going to be looking at some interesting things. Um, in ancient times when the Bible was written, there was this idea that everything to do with women, whether that was their characteristics, so being intuitive, emotional, empathetic and nurturing, that all of these ideas were inferior to the classic manly traits of physical strength, bravery, courage and conquest. And we know that this, this isn't true. We don't any longer buy into these stereotypes. And we know that whatever gender we are, we can and should develop according to our own giftings and the needs that are in front of us as well, of course. So nurturing is the job of parents, not just mothers. And bravery and courage is the destiny of women and men. In fact, whilst we may refer to God, the Father and Jesus as male, which of course they are defined that in the Bible and that's how we speak of them, um, they also have motherly traits and characteristics as well. And so we might be thinking about some of those this morning. And we're going to be thinking about mothers of the church who may not be biological mothers for all sorts of reasons. So we're thinking about the women who don't have children and also the men who contribute to this crucial role of caring and nurturing, whether that's children or people in the church. Um, so whether you are fathers or grandfathers or not, um, men, women, children, we want to include everyone because it takes a village to raise the children. And children are not only our future, but they're part of who we are today. So this picture here, the iconic Moses basket, is going to be in the background of most of what I'm going to be talking about today. Firstly, a large percentage of my time here has been at the wonderful lighthouse on a Thursday morning. Um, and I think that this iconic picture has to be a symbol of lighthouse, which is part of Grow Baby. Uh, the charity that runs through a lot of the vineyards in the country. And when we were in Aylesbury, we uh, had a grow baby, and I remember lots and lots of Moses baskets that we gave away. So it's very iconic for me. Um, in Sutton Vineyard, we started our lighthouse ministry um, at the Dolphin Pub, which was given to us as a space for prayer, but also as being a place to bless the community. And the dolphin 
is a brilliant location in the high street, which went from having a negative impact on the community in years gone by, for various reasons, to a place which brings love and light and healing. If you're not familiar with the Lighthouse, which I'm sure a lot of you are, most of you are, it's a ministry which takes large donations of baby and children's clothing and equipment and gives it away free to anyone who needs it. And we also provide a safe space for coffee and cake and prayer and a chance for young children to play. And like many of the things that we do as a church, it's run by people who give their time, energy and expertise completely voluntarily. We did share about the impact of this ministry a few uh, weeks ago. And if you didn't see that, uh, if you check up on the service of the 5th of February, you'll be able to um, see the impact of what it does in the community. Um, but I do want to give a shout out to the people that I've been working with there, um, the two Claire's and Jenny and Kimberly and Mandy and Shaney who come every week. And then there are other volunteers who help regularly and make Lighthouse possible as well, who come regularly. Shaney, I just want to give a double shout out to. Not only is she the wonderful mother of Leo, but she's also the mother of everything technical or mechanical to do with baby equipment. So we really, really value what she does. Whatever make of um, equipment we have, Shaney knows how to put it up and how to put it down, <laughs> how to make it lie down, how to make it sit up. Um, she knows the latest legal guidelines on car seat recommendations, when to keep them, when to give them away, and when to throw them away because they're no longer safe. So thank you, Shaney. Um, the other mother's space that we value in church is the Wendy House, our toddler group, which has been going for 25 years. Uh, again, all run by volunteers, Hannah and Lily and Jenny and Mandy and others. Bev Clark, our previous and founding senior pastor, started it. And Hannah Miles told me that not only is it a safe and fun place for children and parents to share lives, but it's also a place um, where grandparents are able to come and be part of that community as well. And all of these places are open and welcoming to men who are in a nurturing parental role. Looking after children is best done in families. We don't want to buy into the stereotypes that say it has to be a particular type of person that is involved. Um, and there are many models of family and amongst other things, the church should represent a loving, fun and safe place, the village where it takes a village to raise a child. Mothers, fathers, grandparents, aunties, uncles, brothers, sisters, cousins, and all the rest. So that's things that um, are really happening in the church, which are child and mother spaces, and that they're absolutely brilliant. Let's go back to the Moses basket, because we're actually going to look at some of the story of Moses in the Bible today. Have you thought about the fact that every time we read about a hero in the Bible, we don't often recognise that their story is absolutely full of unsung heroes as well? 
And this is particularly true, of course, because the Bible was written over a, a period of a few hundred years, during which time the groups of people, the tribes, the families, were all defined in masculine terms. Um, the man at the top and the people belonging to him underneath. So it's not that we're going to be speaking against men, but what we are going to do on this Mother's Day is consciously look for some of the unsung heroes who are mothers. Okay, so the story of Moses is in the book of Exodus. It's the second book in the Old Testament, and it includes the story of how the Israelites came out of slavery. It's part of a much bigger story, of course, which goes from the creation of the world in Genesis at the beginning until the end of Exodus, where the Hebrew people, after wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, are standing on the outside of the promised land waiting to go in. So let's go to Exodus 2. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. I don't know how many of you have watched the film, The Prince of Egypt, or maybe another film connected with the story of Moses, um, but the Bible itself uses very few words to tell this story. It's very short, but we must remember that the whole of the biblical text, right up until the 1500s, was a, a book of stories, and it was... Um, until the, the, the printing press was invented, all of the Bible stories were part of oral culture. They came from the art of storytelling. So not only was there stories in the Bible, but the way that all of these stories were passed down was through the art of storytelling. And this story is no different. Um, it's the beginning of what we could say that for Christians and Jews is the most important story in the Old Testament. And it's also a story which Jesus' life, death, and resurrection became intricately connected with. The idea that God rescues his people who are trapped in slavery. It's the beginning of the story of how Moses came to be born in Egypt and how God used him to free the Hebrew slaves. That summary in itself sounds like a great story with a happy ending, but we know that all good stories even if they have a happy ending, are not always happy all the way through. So here we see the beginning of a story which is actually dripping with heartbreak. Hold on to that story for a minute because I want to tell you a 21st century story at this point. And it's connected with our journey with Jason and Bev, who, are, who we're standing in for at the moment before Julian and Libby, the new senior pastors, join us. Jason and Bev um, were area leaders in the vineyard and they uh, mentored a number of vineyard leaders. And we were part of that group and we offered our house as a gathering place for this group to come for a kind of retreat day. So we set up our 
the outside decking on our house. We had a beautiful barn in the countryside. It was a great spot for busy leaders to come and relax and share a time praying and learning together. And we even had sheep grazing in the background to complete the idyllic setting. But unfortunately, um, on this particular day, it was the sheep that presented us with a problem. Um, but the problem that they presented us with was not nearly as bad as the problem that they had. What happened was that it was the day that the farmer decided to separate not the sheep from the goats, but the ewes from the lambs. And the lambs were put into a field to stand alone without their mums for the first time in their lives. And then the mums were put into a field without their lambs for the first time of their lives. And this happened either side of our house, of our garden. <laughs> so shortly after everyone arrived for a peaceful retreat in the country, the ewes and the lambs started crying. And um, it was earth shattering and it was totally traumatic and distracting. We had to go in indoors. And we didn't realize what the noise was all about until later. Of all things that go against nature, this must be one that is really up there in significance, a mother and child being separated. It goes against the natural order of care and protection and nurture that's built into being human, but also being part of the animal world as well. And Coming back to our Moses story, we see this here at the beginning um, of this story as well. A mother being separated from her son. A little bit more context. The Hebrew people had become slaves in Egypt after they'd settled there because of a famine. After a number of years, um, their forefathers, Jacob and Joseph, Joseph, died. And the people increased in number. But as the foreigners in the land, they were made to be workers for the Egyptian building projects. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, got worried as the years went by because the numbers of Hebrew people were growing and growing so much that he started to worry that they might take over. Um, they might take our houses and our jobs, perhaps he thought, um, or they might do something worse than go on strike. And because of this, the Pharaoh decided that all the baby boys should be killed. This is what Moses was born into, and this is why mum had to hide him. So Moses' life was under threat from the very beginning. His mum hid him for the three months, and then she could hide him no more. The basket that she made was a bit more substantial than the classic Moses basket, but it was made of papyrus and coated with tar and pitch. And then she had to do one of the most terrible things that any mother might have to do in extreme circumstances. She had to let her baby go. She didn't know the end of the story at this point. And people don't willingly give their children up, do they? They don't willingly put their children in boats or baskets, unless that is the only option that they might have for their survival. 
And for most of us, literally, this is not a decision that we have to make, although some of us may have to make very difficult decisions for our children or about our children. But if we think about fostering and adoption that, that Wendy told us about earlier, um, there are people around, um, even in this country, but around the world, who literally have to make decisions every day. Back to the story in the Bible, Exodus chapter 2. His sister, Moses' sister, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So she knew. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? For me, this part of the story shows an amazing combination of God's providence, bringing things together for good. Um, Hebrew people, Egyptian people, enemies, um, so many shades of grey, um, but also a fantastic um, picture of a family's resilience and working together. So although mum had to put the basket in the water, somehow the sister stayed with it. I don't know if you've seen The Prince of Egypt. It's a fantastic start of the film where the basket goes all these sort of past crocodiles and downstream, and I'm not sure whether it happened like that, but... Um, the sister stays with the basket until it's found. And we don't know whether she puts her life in danger to do that, but she's there. And um, when Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe, she opens the basket. She knows it's a Hebrew boy, but she can't resist loving that baby in the basket. It's, it's one thing knowing that something terrible um, is happening to people, um, refugees, uh, perhaps she knew, I'm sure she knew what, what her father wanted, um, but when she saw that baby looking up at her and crying, um, he became more than just one of those awful immigrant Hebrews, but he looked up at her as a precious child. And um, perhaps what was going through her mind was, I'm just not sure if my wet nurses will want to nourish a Hebrew child or um, they might give him up to the authorities. So, of course, then when Moses' sister turns up right in front of her and says, oh, would you like me to find a Hebrew mother to be the wet nurse for this baby? She says, yes, yes, that'll work. Yes, go and, go and get her. Um, so we think, actually, that might have been a really good place to end the story. Mother has to give up child. Child is in danger child is rescued, mother is back with child. Um, but it's not the end of the story. We know it's not the end of the story. It's just part of the intricate toing and froing of the narrative. And we still ought to go, to go through the challenge of the life to the hero Moses, um, the overcoming of the monster Pharaoh, um, and the quest for the threatened freedom of God's children, the Hebrew slaves. So the next phase of the story begins like this. 
Back to Exodus 2. Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. Win-win. <laughs> so the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So after this time of weaning, Moses' mother again takes him back to the daughter of Pharaoh and gives up her son for the second time. She's with him for a substantial amount of time. We don't know how, how long uh, before she has to give him up. But she has to let Pharaoh's daughter name him and bring him up then. She has to let him go. So the baby is called Moses. And the name Moses is linked to the idea that she drew him out of the water. And this also links throughout the biblical story um, with the idea of them coming through the Red Sea, coming through the, the, the sea where God parts the waters and makes it safe for them to go through. And also the New Testament links these themes with Christian baptism and the idea of going into the water and coming out of the water and being rescued from the power of sin and death. So do come to that baptism uh, taster course because there's so much more to learn about that. The other thing that this story shows as well is God's providence, as well as God's providence and care, is how a number of women faithful to God manage together to overcome the oppressive power of Pharaoh. Interestingly, the Bible doesn't mention Pharaoh's name. It's just his title, like king. Um, and it's a recurring theme through the whole Bible of a malevolent power. In the New Testament, the idea of the Pharaoh is picked up as describing the power of sin as a cosmic power, um, like a demonic power that people have to battle with. Um, so, although Pharaoh is not given a name, there are two other people in the story who we haven't read about yet, who, have, who were given a, a, a name, and they were the two midwives. And in chapter one of Exodus, they're, they're, these midwives are spoken about, and their names are Shifra and Puah. And when Pharaoh gave the edict about the baby boys. He was speaking specifically to the midwives and he said to them, when you're delivering the babies, if the newborn baby is a boy, kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. I hadn't quite noticed before that this was actually supposed to be quite subtle. Um, and it was, so it wasn't that Pharaoh kind of made this massive announcement that all the babies were going to be killed, uh, baby boys were going to be killed. But he said it subtly to the midwives. You just make it look as if they died in childbirth. So after a while, Pharaoh noticed that not much was changing. And um, we're not quite sure how long it went unnoticed. But at some point, Pharaoh kind of noticed that there were still quite a lot of baby, boy, baby Hebrew boys around. So he called the midwives back and said, um, you know, what's happening? So the Bible tells us that Shifra and Puah feared God more than Pharaoh. And therefore, they did not kill the baby boys. Um, so anyway, when Pharaoh said to them, you know, what's been happening? 
why haven't you done what I asked you to do? The women said to Pharaoh something like this. You're never going to believe it. Those Hebrew boys, they just pop out. <laughs> because by the time we arrive to deliver them, they're already there. <laughs> so the Hebrew, uh, so the, the midwives told this story and somehow managed to get away with it. And it's just a great story. Um, and then the other mother in the story, of course, is the Egyptian princess. If there was ever a cause for ridicule amongst men, I think, um, it must be that if your daughter ignores your commands, how can you ever rule a nation? Um, but Pharaoh doesn't even notice that one of his own grandchildren is, in fact, one of the Hebrew boys. So the power of Pharaoh is great, and it does harm, and it causes suffering. But through that story of suffering and harm, we can see the beginning of the story of freedom and deliverance and how the way that people are used in that story make a difference and show whose power is most powerful. But the Bible doesn't hoodwink us into thinking that everything is going to be or always should have been ideal. It doesn't put across the idea that in order for children to turn out okay, or as they should, there must be a perfect scenario, or a perfect family, or a perfect world. At any point along the way in these stories, the people could have given up. Moses' mother could have given up. Moses was in someone else's care, and this could have been the end of her life. It could have been the end of her purpose. But she was part of a much bigger story, one which she could never have imagined. And Moses, because of his mixed heritage, understandably has massive insecurities about his identity, about his calling, about who he belongs to, what he should be doing. He finds it really hard to believe that God wants to use his unique place in the world to help to save his people. And he spends a lot of his life in the desert just coming to terms with who he is. And God lets him do that. Um, before he calls him back to help to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. So we're going to leave that story there. I think we just wanted to draw out a few points from it. And I want to move on to uh, another part of the talk. I asked a few mothers in the church and mothers of the church what kind of encouragement they might give to people struggling with the challenges of life and motherhood. Uh, one mother whose child was faced with danger at birth and has a significant disability told me that she holds on to the verse in Psalm 118.17 that God gave for her son. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. Psalm 118.17. And for her own life and the implications this has for her, she holds on to the verse in Ephesians 2.10 that both he and she are God's handiwork, created to do good works that he has planned in advance. So many things she didn't choose, and yet she chooses to trust God with her own life and the life of her precious family. 
Another mother in the church who doesn't have children of her own holds on to the promise in Psalm 113.9 that he settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. And this amazing woman is an integral part of just about all the children's ministries in the church and has a real heart for teaching and encouraging the next generation. She gave me this verse as one which is so great at putting across the idea that faith is something that the children catch from us much more than learn in a formalized way. This is in Deuteronomy 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be put on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. It's in the rub of life that we learn together, walking along, driving somewhere, at the dinner table, in the bath, before they go to sleep. What a wonderful opportunity we have as parents or other parents, helpers, part of God's village that bring up the children to share God's love with them through the disappointments and the joys of life. And for the next couple of minutes, the last bit of the talk, I want to share some scriptures that I love which describe God in mother-type language. Um, this first one is from the book of Hosea. It says, yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I who took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. So Ephraim is one of the tribes of Israel. And do you realize that we are not only God's hands and feet, but we're also God's cheeks. And when you press those adopted or fostered children or your own birth children into your cheeks, you are God's cheeks to them. And when you bend down and feed those in need, you are God's hands and feet to them. Next verse, Hosea again. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and tear them asunder. A mother bear. You don't want to make a mother bear angry by doing harm to her cubs. And woe betide anyone who mistreats or abuses God's children. If you are a Christian believer in the idea that because of what the Apostle Paul says in the first seven verses of Romans 13 that we should always obey the government, whatever they say, because they're the ruling authority, then you need to read the rest of what Paul says to put this into context. In most of the rest of the Apostle Paul's letters, he writes about how we live as though Jesus is Lord and not Caesar or Pharaoh. And all the verses before and after these seven verses that people often kind of misquote, Paul is describing life as part of the love community, what it is to live with Jesus as king. And it's only insofar as the taxes and the general law keeping and providing for the people that the state must do, Paul says, we should live as good citizens. But where this clashes with God's rule and gracious kingdom and people being harmed, we must become like the midwives and the mothers who protect their children from harm. Remember, the named celebrated midwives were tricky 
Oh, sorry, Pharaoh. Those Hebrew boys just pop out before we can even get there. <laughs> Another verse about God. Like the eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, God spreads wings to catch you and carries you on its pinions. I love this analogy, even if it's more Disney than David Attenborough. Um, the idea of the mother eagle swooping down and catching the baby just before it's going to fall to the floor and then taking it back up to the nest. God will never abandon us. One last one. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. When a mother lactates and is feeding a baby, she physically can't forget her baby because you just need that milk to go and it's painful if it doesn't. And God is more committed and more faithful to us than the bond between a feeding mother and a child. So the story of Moses is not just the story of a male deliverer, it's the story of God's deliverance from the powers of sin and death personified through the power of the time, who was Pharaoh, using frail and imperfect people who came from imperfect families and were born into violent and terrible times. And the story of Jesus also is not just the story of a male deliverer. It's the story of God's deliverance from the power of sin and death. God becoming flesh, a frail person in an imperfect world, who was born into violent and terrible times. And he calls us, his body, the church, to be that body here on earth, his hands, his feet, and his cheeks. And both of them, Jesus more so, didn't give in to the no of the powers around. Both of them experienced the effect of the powers on their lives negatively because of the time that they were born into. And they weren't immune from the violence. They weren't immune from those powers of darkness. And Jesus didn't sin, but he lived under the effect of the power of sin all around him, all of the time. So Jesus calls us into this story of deliverance as the church, and we need each other. Every person is important. Every person has a part to play. The midwives, the brothers, the sisters, the mothers, the fathers, the single people, no matter what gender, ethnic group, or age, we're all adopted into the family, born into the family. We are family. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, both collectively and individually. And I want to thank Susan for this verse and for living it um, and bringing it to my attention today for this talk. So happy Mother's Day. Thank you. I think we, if the worship band could come back, that would be great. And if we just reflect upon our place in the story, we find ourselves in a, an individual story and we find ourselves in a collective story. Um, let's just respond now to God and let his spirit speak to us and encourage us wherever we're at today. <laughs>